Hello, and welcome again to another Conservative Historian Podcast. This one entitled, Western Colonialism, A Different Perspective. The time, December 2020. My name, Belisarius Savas. The description for Timothy Parsons' Rules of Empire contains the following, quote, a sweeping account of the evolution of empire from its origins in ancient Rome to its most recent 20th century embodiment. He explains what constitutes an empire and offers suggestions about what empires of the past can tell us about our historical moment. Parsons uses imperial examples that stretch from ancient Rome all the way to Britain's new imperialism in Kenya, unquote. Parsons' primary goal with this book is to show that essentially empires do not work. It's an interesting take in that some of the example he leans on includes the Romans, the Western Empire 400 years, the Eastern Empire almost 1,000 years, the Spanish in Peru 300 years, the Umayyad Caliphate in Spain 300 years of Umayyad rule, and then another 400 years of Moorish rule. Let's contrast with some of the uh, more, if you will, democratic or republic-type states. Over the past 250 years, France has seen some six or seven different states, including three monarchies, two empires, and countless republics. Germany, which only really uh, began its inception around 1870, has seen, well, we'll just say some pretty interesting states. And the Bolshevik state in Russia lasted about 80 years. And even the United States is younger than pretty much every example that Parsons provides. Parsons, though, provides several insights into his real goal. Like so many of his fellow academicians, the concept of colonialism runs parallel to that of racism. As Parsons states, quote, French and British rulers tried to make good on improving the lives of their subjects, but such imperial humanitarianism that non-Western peoples needed salvation, unquote. Parsons later talks of the, quote, proto-racism, quote, that began with India's British rule in the 1700s, as if bias based on race and ethnicity has not been around since the dawn of time. As with history, going back to Herodotus and Cassius Dio, the work's nature often depends on the writer's perspective. In the case of Parsons, his descriptor, this would be the personal descriptor from his webpage, reads as follows, quote, As a social historian of 20th century Africa, Professor Parsons' research to date has been focused on understanding how ordinary people experienced imperial rule, unquote. Given that for at least half of the 20th century, Africa was ruled by European imperial systems, this gives Parsons his true focus, quote, Parsons' books to date have explored how Africans from diverse walks of life navigated the shifting realities of repression and opportunity that emerged during the imperial and early national eras. Building on this earlier work, he is currently pursuing several research projects. Unquote. The reality of sub-Saharan Africa is pretty harsh. Since the end of the imperial rule, it is not easy to discern a single sub-Saharan African example of success. There was a time when Mali showed promise, but recent coups have put paid to that prospect. And in 2016, the Wall Street Journal noted of Ivory Coast that, quote, for 12 years, Al-Qaeda's franchise in the Sahara has focused its attacks on the continent's weakest and poorest states, 
Now it has turned its violence on a new kind of target, an African success story. For nearly an hour on Sunday, gunmen in bulletproof vests stalked vacationers on a beach in Ivory Coast, Africa's largest cocoa producer and its fourth fastest growing economy. By the time the security forces arrived and killed the three attackers, at least 15 civilians, most of the locals who had been drinking beer and enjoying the surf on a sunny afternoon, and three soldiers were dead. Unquote. The African Exponent website lists seven reasons for the lack of success and prosperity in sub saharan Africa. Number one, civil wars and terrorism, as noted by the examples of both Mali and Ivory Coast. Number two, corruption. Number three, poor education. Number four, health and poverty. Number five, geography, and especially geography, as is established with the numerous landlocked nations that are part of African borders. Six, international aid and its corrupting influence. Seven, unfair trade policies. But this is a typical laundry list of reasons that nations are poor, but not the historical root of these issues, nor one of current governance. The narrative from the left for this lack of success is that the European empires were such an, of an exploitive nature that these nations were rendered incapable of productive self-rule. In the Open Democracy blog, activist Daniel McMillan Voskoboynik states, quote, colonialism was and remains a wholesale destruction of memory, destruction of lands, destruction of the sources of identity, all stolen, languages ripped from mouths. The collective loss to humanity was incalculable as cultures, ideas, species, habitats, traditions, cosmologies, possibilities, patterns of life, and ways of understanding the world were destroyed. Countless ecological traditions involving diverse ways of being with nature were swept away. Unquote. Macmillan Voskoboynik adds, quote, During the 19th and 20th centuries, formal colonialism came to an end. Countries were liberated, new flags unfurled, and rewritten constitutions adopted. But although imperial states were forced to relinquish their hold, their legacies prevailed. Centuries of enslavement, despotism, cross-sovereignty, and ecological demolition had guaranteed a long afterlife to imperial haunting and its logics of conquest and predation. Many of the new nation-states carried on down tracks laid for them by the colonial powers and continued the process of ecological destruction. Under the banners of development, thousands of communities were evicted and displaced in development programs, unquote. Writing in the Christian Science Monitor, reviewer Terry Hartle says, quote, by the 1880s, the scramble for Africa had begun. At the heart of this rapacious quest was the Congo River in equatorial Africa and its enormous, almost impenetrable rainforest, unquote. Hardo calls this period, quote, compelling, fascinating, appalling, and tragic history, unquote. In the early 1980s, a group of Indian historians started the Subaltern Studies programs in which colonial Indian history was written from the perspective of the subjects, primarily of Indians themselves, and not the Indians like Jinnah or Nehru. We're talking about the 
the 300 million peasants. And because the core of this school was, well, a disparagement of Britain specifically, and the West in general, it has gained plenty of purchase in America's academy. After all, anything that trashes the West is going to find purchase. And it is not just Africa. Writing for The Conversation, author Joseph McQuaid notes of India, quote, other industries like gem and mineral mining also destroy the world's ecological sustainability, leading to deforestation and the destruction of natural habitats. Much of this traumatic exploitation of natural resources traces its origins to early colonialism, unquote. So what does all this mean for our discussion of the developing world? Well, simply with a stroke of the pen, South America, Africa, and South Asia are now released from, well, direct responsibility for their present and futures. Now, two salient facts negate this theory. The first is that self-rule has been in place for more than two generations as of this writing. And the second is that several of these nations, such as Zimbabwe and Nigeria, had resources available at the time of independence, but have since been squandered. Obviously, McQuaid, subaltern studies, and all of the rest would fight against this. Here is an example, though, of the gaslighting that is used to justify the argument uh, that McQuaid is using. Quote, During the heyday of British rule, or the British Raj, from 1872 to 1921, Indian life expectancy dropped by a stunning 20%. By contrast, during the 70 years since independence, which would have been 1947, Indian life expectancy has increased by approximately 66%, or 27 years. A comparable increase of 65% can also be observed in Pakistan, which was once part of British India, unquote. McQuaid conveniently explains away the Great Plague that began in China. And yes, this is December 2020, so uh, pandemics and plagues are not necessarily something new to a listener who might be listening in this particular month of this particular year. This plague, which also started in China, killed over 12 million Indians. And unlike COVID, it also targeted the young. McQuaid also does away with the global introduction of antibiotics, a result of Western-style pharmaceutical development. And he conveniently forgets to align that 27 years of Indian life increase with that of the United States, in which in the 1930s, the average lifespan for a male went from 67 up to 81, almost a 15-year 15 15 increase in a developed nation. This is the kind of gaslighting and cherry-picking of facts that McQuaid and other members of the anti-colonial school will use to justify a lot of their policies and the way they want these nations to be governed. The real reason for the detriment of an entire continent is that liberal values in terms of individual liberty and responsibility, the rule of law, limited government, and an economic system of open markets has yet to be attempted. Instead, these nations practice strongman rule based on proto-Marxist beliefs in state-run, state-controlled practices. The rejection of fundamental conservative values and the embrace of fundamentally leftist, progressive values goes a lot further to explain the lack of productive development of these nations than does 
the legacy of colonialism in which some countries were talking hasn't been a factor in 150 years, certainly in South America. Now, here is another example of African struggle, particularly in the state of Nigeria. And this one has to do with the same terminology that the left constantly espouses. This challenge lays in their diversity. Kamal Ashraf and Odid Galore wrote a paper called Out of Africa, Hypothesis, Human Genetic Diversity, and Comparative Economic Development. Yes, that is a mouthful. Their work begins, quote, In particular, the level of genetic diversity within a society is found to have a hump-shaped effect on development outcomes in both the pre-colonial and modern eras, reflecting the trade-off between the beneficial and the detrimental effects of diversity on productivity. While the intermediate level of genetic diversity prevalent among Asian and European populations has been conducive for development, the high degree of diversity among African people and the low degree of diversity among Native American populations have been destructive force in the development of these regions. Unquote. Essentially, the authors argue that too little diversity inherent in a nation such as Bolivia locks a population into a set way of doing things and impedes progress. Alternatively, too much diversity destroys a nation's ability to act in a unified fashion for the benefit of all. One example that fits this hypothesis is Nigeria, home to nearly 200 million people. Nigeria has substantial resources, but also, quote, there are an estimated 250, 250, ethnic groups in Nigeria. Each inhabits a territory that it considers to be its own by right, a first occupancy and inheritance. Individuals who are not members of a dominant group, but who have lived and worked for several decades in the group's territory, are still considered aliens. In most rural areas, such aliens may not acquire outright title to land, yet considerable numbers of people have migrated from one ethnic territory to another in search of farmland. Hundreds of languages are spoken in Nigeria, including Yoruba, Igbo, Fula, Hausa, Ido, Ibibio, Tiv, and English. Unquote. None of this has to do with the legacy of British rule, as these divisions go back thousands of years. Though the primary practitioners of colonialism were European, it does not take a leap of faith to get to the United States, especially in the academy and typical authors of today. In his essay, Race, Class, and Colonialism. Michael Burroway, written back in 1974, writes, quote, As a reaction to race cycle theories, assimilation theses, and prejudice studies, it has become increasingly fashionable to view racial stratification from the perspective of intergroup conflict. In particular, two frameworks have gained popularity in the study of societies where racial divisions are prominent. The first, pluralism, has emerged from the the examination of colonial and post-colonial societies such as South Africa and the West Indies. And in some cases, the framework has been applied to the United States. The second framework, internal colonialism, has been most widely adopted in the treatment of patterns of race relations within the United States, unquote. And within the academy, one can get as many classes on the concept of colonialism that one could possibly handle. 
This is just one set from one university, Tufts, which self-describes as Tufts University, is a private research university on the border of Medford and Somerville, Massachusetts. It was founded in 1852 as Tufts College by Christian universalists seeking to open a non-sectarian institution of higher learning. Now, this is hardly the description of a hotbed of progressivism, such as Berkeley or Bryn Mawr or Oberlin, yet it's 5,900 students, a relatively middle to small number compared to some other universities, has an inordinate amount of choices to get their colonialism learnings. Their colonialism study program for a single semester features over 32 course choices, including human rights in the United States, colonialism and decolonialism, religion, race, and nation in American history, and settler colonialism and the environment. It is not a coincidence that the colonialism issue is on the same level as racism in many academies and its primary argument of critical race theory. Both involve the use of past grievances to justify public policy today, and both negate the power of individual choice and personal license to claim success. At some point, Time needs to be a factor. Nigeria achieved independence from Britain in 1960, but in Latin America, for example, just taking Brazil, gained independence 200 years ago. That was when James Monroe was president of the United States. The next argument of the left is, is that it is the United States intervention and soft power colonialism that has inhibited progress. Even for leftists, academicians, it is rich to explain how the United States has led to two consecutive Brazilian presidents serving time in prison for corruption charges. Is the power of the United States so invasive as to make Brazilian presidents take bribes and participate in corruptive practices? After acquiring its first real empire in Spanish-America War in 1898, the reality is that the United States was reasonably adamant about wanting to get rid of it. Contrast this impulse with the tendency of empires going back to, I don't know, about 3500 BCE. Spain ruled the archipelago of the Philippines for 350 years. The United States' direct rule over the Philippines lasted 37. Spain colonized Puerto Rico and Cuba for 400 years. The United States directly controlled the island of Cuba for three years. Puerto Rico is still part of the United States, but as a commonwealth, electing its own leaders. The government in Washington appoints no viceroys. And given the current desire for the Democrats to create Puerto Rico as a blue state, a better outcome for this conservative would be to grant their independence wholesale. But note, Puerto Rico could do that. They choose not to. On the surface, this piece, this entire uh, dialogue, and I've been speaking now for about 20 minutes, may appear to be a defense of empire. Nothing could be further from the truth. For one, I would abhor being a subject to any foreign role. And this nation was built on the concept of liberty. Instead, this piece is an attack on those historians and journalists who use the legacy of empire to castigate the values upon which this nation was built and those same values that could be utilized by former colonies to create a lasting and general prosperity. These same authors often advocate leftist or far leftist governance for these nations. These positions would be the same governance that has brought additional ruin to once prosperous states like Venezuela. It is the same ideology that has destroyed life in Russia, 
China, and African nations such as Mozambique. When Hugo Chavez became the leader of Venezuela, he was cheered on and supported by leftists, not just throughout the world, but particularly within the United States. And I'm not even just talking about politicians, academics, or even journalists. I'm even talking about Hollywood thought he was a great guy. What Chavez did with his far less governance was take a nation that was once prosperous, that had a burgeoning middle class, and turned it into something that would be akin to Haiti. It is time for these nation's leaders and their academic enablers to consider conservative values, such as individual liberty, the rule of law, and capitalism. Colonialism may have been their past, but these conservative ideas could be their prosperous future. Thank you for listening to this Conservative Historian podcast. For more podcasts, go to www.conservativehistorian.com and look out for book reviews, essays, columns, and videos. This is Bell Abbas. As always, thank you for listening.